All right. Well, beloved, if you've got your Bibles, take them and open them to the book of Jude, and that is the second to last book of the Bible. Um, that's where we'll be this morning, and God willing, that's where we'll be next Sunday and the Sunday after. Um, when Tim asked me to preach for him for three straight weeks, I wanted to do some sort of series, and I did wrestle with what I was going to do, uh, but uh, my son nudged me a little bit, and I just felt like God kept bringing me back to this. So here's where we are, and uh, I kind of feel today, I saw a Facebook meme this week that had a picture of, of a guy probably trying to fit like a 30-foot, like, wooden post into like a little sedan and that's your pastor trying to fit all of his insight into a 30 minute sermon well we're going to go more than 30 minutes i'm going to go ahead and warn you about that but uh, that's kind of how i feel this morning Uh, but i just pray that god will use what he's about to show us for his glory and and just really that we will understand it so if you found jude it's just 25 verses Today we'll only be covering the first four. So let's stand in reverence to the, the, the reading of the Word of God. Jude, only one sh- only there is no chapter, it's just 25 verses. So Jude 1 through 4 says this. It says, Jude, a slave of Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, I want to rightly divide what is before us. I want to faithfully communicate your word that you have given to us. And so we collectively ask you now, Father, by your Holy Spirit, to illuminate your word in our hearts and minds that we might Uh, be conformed to the image of your Son, Lord, that your word might go forth, that the gospel of grace might be known, understood, and proclaimed. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Beloved, no faithful Christian, no one who's obedient to the word of God, and wants to be like Jesus. No one like that craves trouble. No one like that goes looking for a fight. No one like that goes seeking after controversy. And no one like that goes looking to get persecuted. We know this from Scripture. We know 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says that we are commanded to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we might live tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. We should not desire for anything to come into our lives like persecution or trouble that would hinder our ability to just live freely for the glory of God. Later in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, one of the qualifications of an overseer, a pastor, 
is that he must not be pugnacious. He, he can't be someone who goes looking for a fight. I know many online warriors who are pastors who just seem to always be going looking for a fight. In fact, I've been that guy sometimes. But, but that's not how we are supposed to be. In 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul says the Lord's slave, the Lord's bondservant must, quote, not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. And just in case you think that just applies to pastors, in Romans 12.18, Paul is speaking to everyone who's part of the body of Christ. And he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So one thing is clear. And it's that no one who is saved by the grace of God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, should be looking for a fight or or controversy. We should all desire what God desires, and that's that we live tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. We should seek to live obediently to the Word of God, driven by utter thankfulness for the grace that God has shown in saving us. We should seek to live together in the joy of the Lord. That is what we should want. But we know that's not always how it is. Because sometimes persecution comes. Sometimes the fight comes to us. And sometimes there are controversies which must, for the sake of the truth and the gospel and the glory of God, they've got to be addressed. And that is the purpose behind this tiny letter from Jude. And as we'll see, Jude did not want to write what he wrote. He wanted to write something else. But the situation demanded something different. The the, the circumstances dictated he writes something with more urgency about something that is extremely important. Because the people of God always are supposed to know the truth and love the truth and live out the truth. And sometimes... The the circumstances dictate that they demand that we stand up and fight for the truth and we contend earnestly for the faith. So if you want to break this down into points, um, I'm not really good at doing that, but I'm going to try to keep it very simple. There is first the who, and then there's the what, and then there's the why of our passage this morning. The who, the what, and the why. So let's start with the who as we introduce ourselves to this letter who wrote the letter? And it's very easy. We, we see this very plainly in, in verses 1 and 2. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Someone who was named Jude or, or, or Judas or Judah. It's all, all the same, different forms of the same name. And that was a very popular name in first century Israel. Of course, Judah was the name of Jacob's fourth son. It would go on to be what the, the southern kingdom was known as in, in the latter part of Old Testament history. You had Israel to the north, Judah to the south. You have Judah being the name of the tribe by which the son of David, who will reign on David's throne forever, will come. Jesus is sometimes known as the Lion of Judah. And in more recent Jewish history, when this was being written, Judah had been the name of the hero of the Maccabean revolt in 2nd century BC when they revolted against the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. So it was a very popular name. In fact, it's estimated that of the sons of Maccabee, of the Maccabean family, almost 80% of Jewish boys in the 1st century Israel, when this was written, were named after 
those brothers. So Judas being one, Judah, Jude, what, however you want to put that, is one of those. And in the gospel, there are two apostles by that name. And of course, our mind defaults to Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Well, we know that he didn't write this letter. And we also know that there was one, uh, another apostle called Judas, the son of James. But that's not the one who wrote this one either. And, and, and he doesn't identify himself as an apostle. He identifies himself um, uh, as the son. Well, he's the son of James in the Gospels, the apostle. But our Jude who wrote this calls himself the brother of James. Now, if this is a reference to the Apostle James, it would be strange that Jude had not been mentioned in connection with him before. And I say that because we know that the Apostle James also had another brother who was an apostle. John, they were called the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. But uh, that, that James is not mentioned with our Jude. And that James dies in Acts chapter 12. And that leaves only one other James who would have been known by name and by reputation to those who would read this letter, and that's James, the brother of Jesus. Now, this is the James that really rose up in prominence after the death of the Apostle James. In Acts 15, this James has an active role in, in leading the church in Jerusalem, the, 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 this, this little flock at the Jerusalem council, in Acts 15, that's, that's so important to our New Testament theology, Jude was his brother. And so that means that, that Jude was also a brother of Jesus. And we see this elsewhere. In Matthew 13, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and teaches in the synagogue. And how did they respond? Matthew 13, 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not his, is his mother not called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Or Jude? Are they not all with us? They asked. So, so they knew this Judas. They knew this Jude, the brother of Jesus. So it's very interesting as we get into this that when writing this letter which is the only thing we have in the New Testament by Jude, he doesn't appeal to the fact that Jesus is his brother. Now, if we're playing Uno, that's not a, that's not a draw four card to appeal to. That's a draw of four million as far as clout, as far as you better listen to me. I'm the brother of Jesus, but he doesn't do that. He only mentions James as his brother. Furthermore, when, when he does mention Jesus in, in verse 1, it's that he's a slave of Jesus Christ, a slave. Your, your translation may have the word bondservant or servant. It's a translation of a Greek word doulos, which literally means slave. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. The same way Paul describes himself in several of his letters, the same way we, the, the church, the body of Christ are described. We are slaves of of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you are a slave of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to righteousness and Jesus is the righteous one. Now, we certainly don't have a habit of going around and, and calling ourselves slaves, but I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I know this might be construed as a controversial thing in the modern era, but being a slave is in and of itself not considered a negative thing in the Bible. Okay? It's not. It's a matter of 
who or what you are a slave to that makes it good or evil, righteous or sinful. And being a slave of Jesus Christ is as good and as righteous as it gets. He is the perfect master. It's it's exactly what you need to be. Beloved, this morning, do you live your life like a slave to Jesus Christ? Jesus owns you. Jesus is in charge of every part of you, everything, your thoughts, your, your words, your actions. Is Jesus the Lord and the master and you his slave of everything? Jude was a brother of Jesus and still this is the way he decided to identify himself with Jesus as a slave. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? And I think there are a couple of valid reasons why he might do that. And they are things that we should consider and emulate. And first, I think Jude identified himself as a slave rather than a brother of Jesus. Because before the resurrection, Jude didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't, he, I mean, he was his brother, but he didn't believe in him. He didn't believe he was the Messiah at that point. He didn't trust in him as Messiah and as the Son of God. And we know that's for sure in John chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jude didn't believe. But that changed after the resurrection. Because as soon as Acts 1.14, Jude is among the rest of his brothers and his mother and the apostles and others. And they're gathering in an upper room in Jerusalem waiting for the kingdom to come. Because Jesus has gone into heaven and, and, and now they're waiting for the kingdom. But in his humility, Jude doesn't play that brother card when he writes this. He, he's humble. He, he's humiliated by the fact that he didn't believe in him before. And so there, there's probably no little amount of guilt and, and shame because he didn't trust in Jesus before. So he calls himself a slave. And that leads to the second reason I think he might have done this. Jude felt it was more important to identify himself by his spiritual relationship to Jesus, which would never change, than by identifying by a physical, familial relationship to Jesus which was only temporary. And we would do well to pay attention to that this morning because while God has created marriage and while there is no question that in, in, the, in the Bible and in all of creation, God has established the husband-wife relationship as the primary, the paramount human relationship in all of his creation. And while the parent-child relationship is important and brothers and sisters and, and family relationships are very important, they are not eternal. They're just not. As hard as that is for us to wrap our minds around, they are not, those relationships are not always going to be the same way. They are not eternal. And Jude, by this point, has come to understand that with his salvation. See, see, Jude would have been there in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus is teaching in this house. And, and you remember this? Uh, the people come up to him and say, Jesus, your mother and your, your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. And, and the, by the way, the reason they want to talk to him is because they think he's crazy and they want him to, to for, better, for lack of a better way to put it, they want him to shut up. You're going to get yourself into trouble. But Jude is there and he hears Jesus when Jesus responds, Who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jude is probably offended in that moment. 
What do you mean I'm not your brother? Jude is probably offended, but now that he has been made alive by the Holy Spirit and he has believed that his brother Jesus is the Messiah for which Israel has been longing and is the Son of God, now Jude believes and he understands that our identity in Christ, your identity in Christ here this morning, trumps what your last name is. Spiritual bonds are and should be even stronger than family ties because our spiritual bonds are to Jesus and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jude got that. And so that's how he opens his letter. He puts his relationship to Jesus first in how he identifies himself. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so the, who, who received the letter? It's to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So let's take, take a look at that real quick. First, first, the called. And grammatically, it is the called and not just called. These who are those who God has called unto salvation. These are those whom God has sanctified. He has Set them apart. <coughs> Excuse me. These are those of whom Paul writes in Romans 8. Those who have been adopted as his own children. Those whom Romans 8, 28 through 30 says are the called according to his purpose. Those who he foreknew and predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these are these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 28 through 30. So if you are a Christian along with me this morning, beloved, you are one of these called. And Jude is writing to believers. And, and most likely, it's Jewish believers are, are his primary audience by far. And we're going to see more of the reason for that next week as we get into some of the content of this book. A lot of, of Old Testament, a lot of even extra-biblical Jewish writing that's brought into this. But Jude was writing to Jewish believers, those who were called, the called, and thus those beloved by God the Father. Now, in your Bible, it might say sanctified uh, by God the Father. And, and, and like I just said, God certainly does sanctify us. He, he sets us apart from sin. He sets us apart from the world and, and from the dominion of darkness. And He makes us more like His Son. And He makes us holy. But beloved by God the Father is, is most likely the right reading here. And believers, we need to know that if you are in Christ this morning, if you trust in Jesus, you are beloved by God the Father. And that is a, just one of those simple truths that we always need to understand because sometimes in the world you're going to seem like you're alone. Sometimes in the world you're going to seem like everything and everyone is out to get you. But that's not true. You are loved by God the Father. He saves you because He loves you. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and we are. Now, I love my wife, I love my children, but that's nothing compared to the love God the Father has for me and for you. It's a love no one and no thing can compromise or, or destroy. Paul writes it best, in my opinion, in Romans 8, 38 and 39. 
And remember, these verses are talking about the called from just a few verses earlier. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us, the called, from His love. And because of that, it is no surprise that we are also kept or preserved from Jesus Christ there at the end of that sentence. We don't stay in our salvation because of the things we do. We don't stay in our salvation because of our ability to obey. It, it, we, we, we stay in our salvation because of the grace and the saving power of God. I've heard one pastor say, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If I could lose my salvation, I'm wood. I know me. But, but God has kept me for Jesus Christ, for Jesus, his Messiah. And God, if you believe in his son, Jesus is keeping you too. And Jude is writing here so that we all know we're going to be kept for Jesus for eternity. And then he adds, the kind of blessing we often see in these New Testament letters, may mercy and peace and love, which, which are... Three blessings we obtain from God through salvation. Mercy. You know, he gives us what we don't deserve. Or, 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 or actually, let me get that's grace. Mercy, He doesn't give us what we do deserve. That's how I remember grace and mercy. Grace, He gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy, He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He gives us mercy. He gives us peace. You know, God's at war with sinners, beloved. But if you're found in Him, He's given you peace. And then love everlasting. Be multiplied to you. The blessings of salvation are in abundance, Jude says, for the called. So that's the who. Jude to the called, and primarily Jewish believers here. Those in whom God has done a mighty and saving work. So that's the who. Let's get to the what. What is Jude writing about in this letter? Take a look again at verse 3 where he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So... Jude had not been looking for a fight. He, he had not been looking for controversy. He apparently wanted to write what was going to be a very positive letter. A, a letter where he talks about our common salvation. This, this salvation in which we're given grace and or mercy, peace, and love. And this salvation that, that Peter says is bringing joy inexpressible and full of glory. And and, and Jude echoes a lot of what Peter and Second Peter especially says. And, and he apparently was going to write a lot about that. A lot about our salvation. And, and he ends up doing that, but in a different way. Because he, he had not been looking for a fight, but sometimes the fight comes to you. And it came to Jude. So much so that he felt the necessity to write differently, exhorting believers to, quote, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith. The faith has always been the target of challenges because the faith is truth. It's grounded 
in the truth. And though people can sometimes forget that or forsake that, Satan never does. Satan never forgets that. And Satan is the father of lies. Ever since he he tempted in the garden, Satan has done everything he possibly can to destroy the truth, to obscure the truth, to, to mangle the truth, compromise the truth, twist the truth, and replace it with something else. And sometimes he replaces it with something that looks nothing like biblical Christianity. Like atheism or Hinduism or Buddhism or secular humanism. But other times, other times it looks like some version of Christianity. So much so that it can trick people into thinking it is Christianity. Um, Satan has become very good at that. While, while as Christians, we, we might want to guard the faith from attacks from the world. The sad fact of the matter is, beloved, the most dangerous attacks upon the Christian faith have always come from within. Always. Paul warned the elders of the Ephesian church about that in Acts 20 when he said that after he left, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knew this, Jude agreed, and the history of the Christian faith attests that this is true. In Galatians right now, We are in the midst, and we're about to see it more when Tim comes back. We're in the midst of seeing a situation in which keeping the law, ultimately circumcision, was being added to the gospel of grace. And Paul had to contend earnestly with that. We're going to see him contend earnestly with that in the rest of Galatians 2. And after the apostles faded off the scene, the, the church saw no shortage of attacks on the gospel through controversies about the, the, the nature of God, the nature of who Jesus is. Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really man? How does that work? Uh, controversies about the Trinity, controversies about the nature of salvation. And the, these are all things that are inextricably linked to the truth of the gospel. And our day is not without some of those same controversies and others that are attacks upon the gospel. So we have to answer the question, what exactly is the faith for which we must be contending earnestly? What is the faith? It's a question that is both simple and complex at the same time because, beloved, the answer to that question hasn't always been the same. Now, if that raises your eyebrows, if that makes your spidey senses tingle good, because we need to understand this. You see, while God is eternal, and, and while God is outside of time and space, He created time and space, and He works within time and space. And over the course of history, as we know it, He has been revealing more and more about Himself and His creation and His plans. And it's something that theologians call progressive revelation. And it's something we need to understand this morning. Because Adam did not know as much about God's plans as Abraham did. And Abraham did not know as much about God's plans as Moses did. And so on. Because God has been progressively revealing himself to his creation 
ever since Genesis 1. And as it relates to what needs to be believed to be saved, it's the same way. Because in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, when God is unveiling His covenant to Abraham, Abraham doesn't know the name of Jesus. He just knows that God has promised that He's going to have as many descendants as there are the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, credited to him. So Abraham believed the covenant promises and so did Jacob and or Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Jacob's sons after him. That's what they believed. And then Moses comes along and things change. Yahweh brings Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. He brings them to the mountain. And Yahweh gave his chosen nation Israel a purpose. And what was that purpose? <clears throat> to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and, and all the, the moral and civil and ceremonial laws which were to govern how they conducted themselves before him. God gave them a sacrificial system by which they would, uh, albeit temporarily, atone for their sins. And, and that stays in place for a, for a long time. And then John the Baptist comes along. And he's saying something even different. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he's pointing to, to one who is mightier than him, Jesus, and saying, this one is the Messiah. This one is the Son of God. And all Israel is to believe on Him to be saved. And, and, and then after the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 8, Jesus appears to someone named Saul of Tarsus, who would become known as Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, because Jesus chose this well-educated Jewish man to be his chosen instrument and to be the one more than anyone else to articulate his gospel of grace even to Gentiles. And we see that gospel laid out most succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was raised on the third day. He's buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And we are saved by this gospel of grace on the basis of faith. The faith which has now, Jude writes, been once for all handed down to the saints. It has been progressively revealed through history, but now once for all it is delivered. Jude knew by now that his brother Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So the what of this short letter has to be about the importance of the gospel. The faith. But it could not be a joyous letter. It could not be a, a letter which just celebrated that fact, which just celebrated the good news. This letter, no, had to be very serious and exhort believers to contend earnestly for the faith, for the truth, for the gospel. And that brings us to the why. Why did Jude write this letter? Why did Jude have to exhort those who have already been called unto salvation? To contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, why do we constantly need to be reminded to contend earnestly for the gospel we believed? And let's look at verse 4 again. 
For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers, beloved. False teachers, they were prevalent as early as Jude's day. They permeate churches today. Consider 2 Peter 2.1, which again sounds very similar to Jude 4. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The Apostle John... I haven't coughed all week, I don't know. Um, The Apostle John, also writing predominantly to Jewish believers... Warned of false teachers as well. Second John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. False teachers, teachers of lies, following the lead of the father of lies, Satan. Whether they realize it or not. I think there are many false teachers out there who don't realize they are just satanic tools. And they, they were widespread within the, the assembly of Jewish believers. And notice how they got there. <clears throat> this is important. They didn't hold up placards saying, I'm following Satan. No one does that, right? They didn't make a bold announcement that, that what they were teaching was contrary to the word of God, contrary to the faith. No, because Satan is a created being and Just like us, he can and does learn over the course of time, of history. And Satan has learned over time how to be even more crafty and more deceptive, how to manipulate people, how to trick people, how to get his primary message across, which is still the the, the first message we see of his in Scripture. Indeed, has God said? That's what he said to Eve, right? That's still what he's saying. In a lot of different ways. Indeed, has God said that is Satan's gospel. Because doubt is what is introduced by that gospel. And doubt is the opposite of faith. And if you can get people to doubt the truthfulness of the word of God and of the gospel, then you get them to doubt the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And while Christians are rightly concerned with many things coming at them from the world. And beloved, we've got to be concerned about, and and let me just jump on a a little soapbox for a second, a federal government and state and local governments which are increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity and a media industrial complex and an education establishment that is literally hell-bent on baptizing our children in hypersexualization and and the agenda of the sexually perverse and, and... And I could go on and on and on and on and I don't need to, I don't think. But beloved, while we need to be concerned about those things, we should be on guard about those things. We should be on the offensive against such things. And believe me, I am. I am also convinced because the Word of God says so that the even bigger threat, the biggest threat to the church doesn't come from out there. It comes from within. 
because the Bible has told me so. From savage wolves, from false teachers who do not spare the flock, but come in, not with big signs and announcements, but as Jude says, they have crept in unnoticed. And note the verb tense there. It's the past tense. In Jude's day, the false teachers were already there. And they're already here. They have crept in unnoticed. In other words, they look a lot like us. And they sound a lot like us. They speak in Christian. They use the same vocabulary that we do. Though their dictionary is often different, even if they don't admit it. They will use terms we are familiar with so that we think they're saying the same thing we're saying, but they'll often mean something different. But they speak in Christian. They'll even appeal to the Scriptures, but they'll twist the Word of God to suit their message, their agenda. And Christians and churches tend to be slow to recognize them because they look so much like us, they sound so much like us, and and, and we're slow to call them out and mark and avoid them as we're told to in Scripture. Why? Because we don't want to seem unloving. We are fearful of being called unloving or, or unchristian or enter your adjective. We are prone to sentimentality. We are slow to, in the words of one author I read, put it, we are slow to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. I wonder if your definition of love this morning is the same as God's definition because you know, we, we don't want to seem harsh. We don't want, we, you know, we, we want to be, we want to be thought of as nice. We don't want to be given some of the labels that the world likes to toss at Christians who stand firm for the truth. We are concerned too often about offending people more than we are God. And see the consequences of generations of the church's failures in that regard today. So many pews empty, so many congregations this morning um, lack young people. So when they grow up, you know, you know, their parents have taught them the church is not important. So when they grow up, church is not important. Multiple generations have now received more instruction into spiritual matters from the culture, from YouTube and from TikTok and from Instagram than from faithful pastors and teachers and more importantly, parents. These false teachers bring in Destructive heresies, Peter says. And Jude calls them ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And that term Jude uses here for ungodly persons is the same early church fathers used, the same term that early church fathers used to describe heretics and atheists. We don't want to call people that, do we? That's mean. In other words, these were people who did not know God and thus could not possibly worship Him properly. They they play at religion. They might even play the part of pastor or spiritual leader. But there is no fear of God in them. 
and I could go on a long diatribe right now. I'm going to resist the temptation about this, the, 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 the dozens and hundreds of people. I, I might be able to name a hundred of them who I would define that way this morning, who, whose names a lot of you would know many of. But there's no reverence for God in them. There's no love for God in them. And they betray the trust of the people sitting in front of them in all kinds of ways. But the most important way is this. They claim to know God and speak for God and claim to speak truthfully about the Scriptures, and they don't. And one of the best ways to spot a false teacher is that they will often do what Jude is describing. They will turn the grace of God into sensuality. And that word sensuality in other places is translated lasciviousness. I think I pronounced that right. That's a King James word. Uh, Lewdness. A license for immorality. Licentiousness. Turning the grace of God into a license to just do whatever because you know we got grace and love. And God loves you, so you know. The idea is that these false teachers were generally speaking using grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, his saving love as a license to sin. And Paul speaks to this very clearly in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace or or shall we continue in sin rather that grace may increase? In other words, can we just go on sinning because God's grace will just be magnified even more? And he says, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? The point being, God has not saved you. God has not made you alive and given you a new heart so that you can continue to walk in sin. On the contrary, we are to walk in the Spirit. But what these false teachers do is they appeal to your sensuality, your fleshly desires, and not to put too fine a point on it, your feelings. It's all about your feelings. So much of of our modern worship services in our culture today are constructed to appeal to our feelings. So so ultimately, it's all about us and not about God. It's about getting us to, to feel a certain way instead of getting us to see God a certain way. And that is big and in His glory. Our holy, holy, holy God and His righteous Son, Jesus Christ. And we are to see, when we see him, we realize the lowly place we are before him and our need to live lives of God-given repentance. And by the way, if you want to see grace increase, we don't do that by sinning. We do that by seeing how bad of sinners we are and how God has still saved us. And a lot of that comes from, you know, when, when we don't see that way, when, 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 when it's about our feelings, that comes from a bad definition of love, our need to feel something. And that's how you get manipulated. That's how you get tricked. And that's how you get led down the pathway of a false teacher. And there, there's much more of that in the, the modern church again than I, I care to talk about. But over the next two weeks, you know, especially next week, we will talk about some of that. But that's why I chose Jude. Because this little book is about contending earnestly for the faith, the faith, against everything that masquerades as faith. 
And I don't want to be led astray. And I don't want you to be led astray either. Because don't overlook that part of verse 4 I didn't speak to yet. False teachers in the church were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. In other words, they might creep in unnoticed. They might sneak in. They might fool people. They might fool churches. They might fool denominations. But they haven't fooled God. They haven't. They aren't. They won't. They have denied instead. They've denied our only Master and Lord. Or better, there's our only Master God, Jesus. Jude is, grammatically speaking, Jude is calling his own brother God here. And God has marked them out. And he will judge. God will judge. That's the thing we've got to remember. If you get discouraged about the culture and all the stuff we see in the culture, and if you get discouraged about the church even, and, and the savage wolves we think are in there that are in there, that, that have crept in unnoticed, just remember God's going to judge them. And you don't want to be caught up in that. <laughs> You don't want to be caught up in that. The good news for us today is Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, God's requirement for man from the start, while there has been progressive revelation, more things to believe along the way, God's requirement has never changed. And his requirement for you is the same as for me. And it's perfect righteousness. You know, Jesus himself says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect righteousness. And man's problem is very obvious. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have gone aside. All have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 You, beloved, are a sinner. And you fall short of the glory of God. And the result, if nothing changes, is what Paul calls in 2 Thessalonians 1 the penalty of eternal destruction. That's just another way of saying eternal damnation. The lake of fire. God's righteous judgment upon sinners for all of their sins for all of eternity. So we're hopeless, right? Thanks be to God. He has provided the one and the only solution who is, as Jude says, our only Master and Lord. God the Son left heaven. God the Son came to earth took on flesh, took on... He added humanity to His deity, His already eternally existent deity. And He dwelt among us. And He lived in the, the age of the law. He kept the law perfectly. He was perfectly righteous. And, and, and then He went to the cross and He bore the full fury of the wrath of God for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe. And on the third day, He was raised from the dead. And the way that applies to you this morning is this. If you trust in Jesus, if you trust in what He has done in your place, if you hold to the faith, you have been saved. You are saved. And you will be saved. And the question for those of us whom 
God's gracious salvation has been applied. The question for for those of us who have been called is this. Are you then ready to contend earnestly for the faith? Are you prepared to contend with those who have crept in unnoticed? Are you prepared to, to contend with the ones who distort the gospel? And, and they may sell high, best-selling books in the Christian bookstore or on Amazon. or, or they, they may be on your favorite Christian radio station. They are in our churches. Paul said they would be. John and, and, and Peter and Jude knew they would be. So what will we do about this? We don't need to be quarrelsome. We don't need to go seeking after controversy. We don't need to go looking for a fight. But rather it's from the God-hating culture on the outside or the false teachers who creep in unnoticed on the inside. The fight comes to those who hold to the faith. The fight will come. The fight has already come. And we must contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to us. We must contend for the gospel because that's everything. That's the ball game. If you are watching us today via Facebook Live, we thank you. I hope that you hold to the faith and are ready to contend earnestly for it. I want you to know that we love you, that we care about you, and we are here to help you in any way that God enables us. Please don't hesitate to, to message us with your thoughts or your prayer requests or concerns. Any questions you have, we'd love to hear from you. But those of us here, as we prepare for a time of reflection and commitment, I, I ask you this. First, most important, have you believed this gospel? Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. It all starts with that. None of the other questions apply if you don't believe the Gospel. If you do, are you taking what Jesus has said and done for you seriously? Are you willing and ready and to contend earnestly for the gospel of grace. These questions and your answers are between you and God and whoever you wish to share them with. They should be open to your church as well. But as we prepare to, to pray, this front area is open to come ask questions, to confess sin, to pray, to commit, to respond, however the Holy Spirit might be leading you. So as we bow in prayer, let's do that now.